I'm Michael Osborne from the University of California at Santa Barbara's program in the history of science, technology, and medicine. And I'd like to welcome you to a, the program entitled New Visions of Nature, Science, and Religion, sponsored with the generous support of the John Templeton Foundation and the University of California's College of Letters and Science. What we'd like to do today is have an informal conversation with two uh, experts in the field of science and religion who are on our campus and will be talking this evening um, in a themed lecture entitled Biology, Moral Morality, and Theology. Let me do some introductions. On my left here is Professor Nancy Murphy, who is a professor of Christian theology at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. Uh, Professor Murphy has uh, published widely on aspects of science and religion, particularly neuroscience. She's the author of seven books with another one in the making as almost as we speak. Um, one book in particular has gotten a lot of press. If I were to pick that book out of the field of seven, I'd cite that as being Theology in the Age of Scientific Reasoning. That won the American Academy of Religion Award for Excellence. On Professor Murphy's left is uh, my colleague in arms from Westmont College at, uh, in, from Montecito, California. It's Professor Jeffrey Schloss. Professor Schloss is an ecologist with interest in forest ecology. He is also director of biological programs for the Christian Environmental Association. He has been a Danforth Foundation Fellow and also a Communications Fellow for the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He, Professor Schloss, works at the intersections then of ecology and biology. He is a practicing biologist. He has a particular interest in altruism. Well, starting off our conversation now with... Uh, Having had brief biographies of the two um, uh, invited guests, I would like to uh, pose a question. Uh, the first question I'd like to pose is, what issue or issues um, caused you to examine this topic of science and religion? Would you say that on balance they were mainly of a, a personal nature or of a professional nature, or would you... Uh, say that they were both. And we'll start with you, Professor Murphy. Okay. Well, uh, I don't think I could separate the personal from the professional. Okay. Um, my life story uh, began uh, with Catholicism. I went through Catholic schools, uh, grade school, and university. Went from there to the University of California, Berkeley, to study philosophy, and discovered that in those higher levels of uh, the intelligentsia, uh, religion was not... Uh, uh, popular. In fact, I would divide my um, professors into two categories. Those who thought religion was still worth arguing against and those who thought it was not even worth doing that much. So it was quite a, um, a shock for me to come from an academic environment that was uh, totally Christianized to an academic environment where um, belief in religion just was non-existent. So that raised for me the question of the um, rational credibility of the Christian faith. I was um, working on a PhD in the philosophy of science and so that was the question of 
what are the uh, rational standards that justify scientific theories, I got interested in the question whether you could apply the same sort of standards of reasoning to theological theories. So um, I was just about finished with my PhD in uh, philosophy. I realized that one thing that I would never be a top-rate uh, philosopher of science because it was basically philosophy of physics and I don't know physics and I don't know enough mathematics to learn. So I thought a career change might be nice. Uh, so I took a second doctorate in theology, which enabled me to pursue the question of the rational credibility of the Christian faith. That uh, put me in contact with um, Robert Russell, who came to the Graduate Theological Union where I was studying and uh, established his Center for uh, Theology and the Natural Sciences. And he immediately um, snatched me for participation in programs because I could talk about scientific methodology and theological methodology. And uh, once you get get started in this field, there's such a demand that whether you want it or not, you will get swept up into the conversation. And I think it's very ironic because I'd gotten out of philosophy of science, so I wouldn't always have to be talking about science that I don't really know firsthand. And now here I am always talking about science that I don't know firsthand. Thank you very much. Uh, Professor Schloss, uh, would you care to reflect on uh, what what brings you to this point in your life in terms of your interest in science and religion? Yeah, um, unlike Nancy, actually, I wasn't raised in any particular faith tradition, but I was raised during the Sputnik era when in our public education system there was tremendous encouragement to go into science, and I just ate that up. I, From my earliest recollections, I knew I wanted to be a scientist, and all my friends were out playing football and basketball and I was the nerd uh, at home with my chemistry set and physics sets, and uh, so I knew early on I wanted to be a scientist. And then I actually remember a moment in the sixth grade in my world history book, there was a little box quote from Confucius that said, uh, to know what you know and to know what you don't know is the characteristic of one who knows. Mm. And I went to my teacher and I said, what is this? <laughs> and he said, well, that's philosophy, and you have to wait till you get to college to study that. Mm. So I thought, well, no, I want to be a philosopher. Uh, and by the time I did get to college, I actually studied both philosophy and science and experienced uh, what many of us did in those eras, described by C.P. Snow as the two cultures phenomenon, uh, that we have these two ways of understanding the world that weren't talking to one another. And I had no religious faith at the time, but I, I had a passion for bridging the explanations of mechanism characteristic of science uh, with uh, explanations of meaning, characteristic of philosophy and religion. And then uh, later on in life, I did come uh, to have my own uh, faith commitment, and that initial impulse of bridge building spilled over into science and religion. And in particular, uh, as a graduate student in ecology and evolutionary biology, it seemed to me that those issues, the issues of uh, the meaning and the stewardship of the natural world uh, and the origin and the character of living beings and human nature in particular were really important issues to think about both scientifically and theologically. We'll get back to some of those issues. <clears throat> I'd like, however, to, uh, so our audience can 
be located a little bit more in what you do in terms of your professional life. Uh, ref talk now a little bit about your two, I think, very different institutions. Be um, so both of you then are teaching at uh, private institutions with ties to a certain religious tradition. And your uh, Professor Schloss is, of course, doing science when he's not teaching about it. And um, Professor Murphy, in fact, ha has quite a shop, as we might say in academe, of, uh, of, of interest in philosophy of science and religion issues. So uh, let me ask you a couple of questions. The first, well, it's one question with two parts, I guess. What do your colleagues, I will address Professor Murphy first, what do your colleagues, colleagues in a, a seminary think of your interests in science? And then secondly, what about the students that you're teaching? Uh, because at, at, at first blush, it would seem to me, having been trained in the natural sciences and then history, that you know, philosophy and theology split a long time ago, and science is something that would not be, or an interest in science is something that perhaps wouldn't be cultivated at a place like Fuller Theological Seminary. Well, let me start with the students rather than the faculty. Um, our students are drawn from the evangelical Protestant stream of um, okay. uh, Christianity, uh, neither fundamentalist nor liberal. And they come with a mixture of attitudes towards science. I would say about a third of them uh, did as I did. They studied science, they studied their Christian teaching, and they thought, these have to fit together somehow, and they worked out a, a solution to it. About a third have not considered the relationship at all, and another third have been either convinced by their own thinking or by teachers that uh, Christianity and science are incompatible, and in particular evolutionary biology is incompatible with uh, Christianity. So one concern is whether I can teach uh, the students in a sensitive enough manner that I don't destroy their faith but get them to think about issues uh, at a higher level than they had before. Uh, that's the main concern. What, you know, what can we offer our students? I've had some discussions with faculty members and uh, they know that the science issue is a hot one for evangelicals and I think they're happy to have somebody on the faculty who can serve as the lightning rod for these issues. I don't uh, teach courses specifically in theology and science because then you only get the people who are already interested in the issue. So I try to work it into the other courses that all of the students will be taking so that I get a, a broad cross-section of the students. Now, uh, another question is how does, how does the administration um, like this? And uh, I ran into the president in the uh, airport just as I was coming up here and he said something about my always um, uh, pushing the uh, envelope at the seminary and this is for, for two reasons uh, without knowing that there was such a thing as the intelligent design movement I was asked by the president if I would review Philip Johnson's book Darwin on Trial okay. and I did review it and I gave it a negative review uh, with a little humor included. And um, it, uh, one might say, it uh, stirred up a hornet's nest of opposition. And there were inquiries made as to whether I was an appropriate faculty member to have at Fuller Seminary. So it was discussed uh, by the administration. 
it was even discussed at the level of a trustees meeting uh, with full support of my fellow faculty members and administrators. Uh, I'm still there. It happened to be the year I was up for tenure, so I think that speaks well of Fuller Seminary that they had the courage to go ahead and um, tenure someone who was as controversial as I was at that time. Uh, that uh, um, snowstorm has sort of died down, but uh, my most more recent work is the topic of human nature. Right. And uh, most Christians are either dualists, people are made of a, a body but also a non physical soul, or trichotomists, uh, body, soul, and spirit. And I argue that we are purely physical. And uh, that is quite alarming, uh, striking to some of the um, folks both inside and outside of the seminary. So I'm assuming that the uh, administration gets a lot of letters about that also. Uh, I was struck by one of your comments about trying to disperse science and religion issues across the curriculum because this is a technique of mainstreaming that has been very productive for what used to be called women's history but also gender history is that we shouldn't have a class just on gender or say science and religion but we if you can the best of all possible worlds is to have those issues raised again mm -hmm. from class to class and across the curriculum let me uh, ask Professor Schloss uh, whose situation of course is a bit different. He is a, a scientist then who is teaching science at uh, Westmont uh, College, uh, who, which is a college in the Christian tradition, and simultaneously, as I mentioned in his introduction, he is also involved with what's called the Christian Environmental Association. Uh, so I would ask uh, Jeff a similar question then. Uh, uh, about uh, th just the context of your teaching mm -hmm. and maybe some reflections on your colleagues and your students. And then I have uh, kind of a follow-up question for Jeff. Uh, and Nancy's welcome to come in if she would like on uh, the legacy of Christianity um, and the current environmental movement. But go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, my, my context is different, but actually our, the, our institutions uh, share some things in common. They draw from a similar constituency uh, evangelical Protestants, and I think their posture toward uh, education is actually rather similar. On the one hand, uh, the, the, the ethos of the institution is to reject the isolationist and anti-intellectual uh, heritage that characterizes much of the fundamentalist and evangelical tradition, uh, but on the other hand, to be unapologetically committed to thinking through the implications of learning from the perspective of the theological commitments which draw us together. In terms of my role there, you know, there's, there's the faith aspect, but there's also the tension that I think exists in all liberal arts colleges today. Uh, we say in the liberal arts undergraduate environment that we want to promote interdisciplinary dialogue, and yet there's tremendous pressure to, uh, for specialization and productivity within a guild. So there's a little ambivalence there. When I showed up at Westmont uh, with my dual interest in philosophy and science, probably the first week I had several colleagues come up to me and say, I, I hope you're not just going to do this philosophy stuff and that you're going to continue to be productive in the lab. And on the other hand, the, I mean, the bottom line is, at least with respect to colleagues and administrators, I felt uh, tremendously free and more than just free, encouraged uh, to do this kind of, kind of work. I think it is the rationale for the institutions existing. Uh, in terms of the students, well, that's just been fun. Uh, from the very first day, our students come primed with these questions. 
uh, oftentimes in the classroom, um, on some issues you have to be an evangelist and, and try to make students be interested in the questions that the discipline presents. But on these issues, the integrative issues, how does their faith relate to the, the natural sciences? They're chomping at the bit. Uh, and the one thing that I found, and this may be a little different at Westmont than some sister institutions, they really don't want answers here. Uh, they want to be free to pursue their own answers and, uh, and uh, whatever end of the continuum, if they feel that they're being force-fed, they're going to turn you off. If they feel like they're being invited to ask questions for themselves, they warm up to it. Let me uh, follow up now with a question about the legacy of Christianity, because one of my uh, 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 great joys uh, being a professor here at University of California, Santa Barbara, is teaching in the science division in the environmental studies program. There is a lore in the program that uh, Christianity is one of the, the problems uh, that we have now with the environment. That is to say that there are Christian doctrines that have led to the degradation of the environment. And uh, is that necessarily so uh, from, from, for either of you? Uh, or is, that, is, that, is the question in, inappropriately asked? I, I bring that up because this is, seems to be something that, that the entering freshmen in environmental studies have already learned somewhere. Um, it's something that my own mentor at the University of Wisconsin argued against, that it was not uh, Christianity, but in fact it was industrial capitalism that did the environment in. Uh, but do you have any perspectives on that? Because uh, there are uh, some documents that seem to put nature in second line to human agency and uh, as something to be e exploited. Do you, so let's start with Jeff, and then we'll move to uh, Professor Murphy on that. Well, this, this is an issue that I have spent a big portion of my uh, academic career thinking about and being personally invested in, so I'm, I'm glad you raise it. I don't want to dodge it. I, I do need to say, first of all, that uh, our culture, uh, Christian culture and culture in, in general, has, has done a terrible job with the environment, and we need to face that and ask why. Uh, my, my, my own take is that uh, Christian theology has been used to justify uh, some mistreatment of the environment, but that's been bad theology, and it's been used and distorted in a post hoc attempt to justify or rationalize uh, rather than simply uh, going to the scriptures doing honest exegesis mm -hmm. and being led there. And I think you're ultimately referring to the, the uh, Lynn White thesis of the, exactly. in the historical roots. Exactly. Uh, I think he gets his history completely wrong, by the way, and, and I think his, his theology is bad. And if I just m might say the very uh, notion of dominion theology, which he extracts from the opening mm -hmm. uh, chapters of Genesis, is actually much more complicated complex in that. Uh, the, the biblical view, and especially the Christian view of dominion, is servant leadership. Mm -hmm. And in the Old Testament it says uh, that uh, Adam was placed in the garden to, to till and to keep. Uh, the Hebrew words are avad and shamar there. And elsewhere, um, till means serve. Uh, mm -hmm. And keep means, um, it's this word that's used in this wonderful ironic blessing the Lord bless you and keep you. Mm. So I actually think the teaching of Scripture is that we are to serve and to keep, uh, to steward the earth. Mm -hmm. And 
throughout Christian history, from the Desert Fathers uh, to the Anabaptists uh, to Celtic Christians, there's a wonderful tradition of honoring uh, and keeping the environment uh, as a work of art, as a creation uh, of the ultimate artist. Nice perspective. Hmm. Professor Murphy? Well, I uh, mentioned earlier my work on the nature of the human person uh, and my objection to dualistic understandings of human nature. And I think that that's actually relevant to this issue because what happened in the early centuries of Christianity is that uh, uh, Greek worldview was incorporated into our theology. And one aspect of that Greek worldview was a hierarchical ordering of beings with the divine beings at the top and whatever uh, other sorts of spiritual beings there were and then the human soul and then there's the great ontological dividing line and the human body goes below that and the animals and the plants and the inorganic matter so it's a worldview that makes a very sharp distinction between the spiritual and the material and uh, despite the attempts of Christian theologians to remember that scripture says everything that God made is good our bodies are not uh, prisons they are gifts of God etc there still has been that uh, Greek tendency to give prim- primacy to the spiritual and denigrate the physical so when you get rid of that Greek worldview and the dualistic anthropology that goes with it uh, it allows us to get back to that Hebraic understanding of human beings as uh, earth creatures were made of the dust of the earth were created right along with the other animals uh, and we are special for very special reasons because we are addressed by God but not because we have some special non-material stuff in us and if we had kept that perspective of our relatedness to the rest of the world throughout the the 2000 years of Christianity I imagine that uh, the physical world would be uh, treated would have been treated much better than it has been so a connection that uh, for many traditions of Christianity has been lost then. Yes. Very, very interesting. Uh, let's talk a bit about contemporary events. Um, we are in uh, the year 2005, and um, one of the issues now uh, that we're seeing is this thing called intelligent design, and I know that both of you, whether you like it or not, are spending some of your time, maybe more time than you would like, on intelligent design. So if I understand it correctly, just for our viewers, there are as many as 19 states that have some kind of a lawsuit right now in America going over whether intelligent design, which I'm going to ask Professor Schloss to uh, define in a moment, should or should not be taught in public schools. So intelligent design at the moment is much in the news. Um, And and to me, coming at it as a historian of biology, it seems to be a curious blend of what I'd call evolutionary theory with older arguments for design, um, although not pure ones, injected into it. So I'm going to first turn it over to Professor Schloss to maybe give us a a thumbnail, uh, if, if that's possible, definition of intelligent design, and then let's talk about this contemporary issue a bit. Well, I will give you a thumbnail, but uh, actually I need to do that by making a distinction between two senses of uh, design arguments. Uh, One tradition of design arguments is several millennia old, 
It exists in all the Abrahamic traditions, in the Greek tradition as well. It actually doesn't rest on the inability of natural regularities to explain uh, a phenomenon. It rests on examining the natural regularities themselves and drawing a design inference. And recent examples of that in current thinking would be things like uh, the anthropic or fine-tuning arguments, mm -hmm. which aren't contra-science. Uh, their inferences from natural regularities. Now, the intelligent design movement that is currently on the table is, is a different approach to the design arguments. It does, it's not thousands of years old. It's, it goes back to the natural theology movement of several centuries ago, looking at living organisms uh, as products of by virtue of their complexity as products of an intelligent designer, when Darwin proposed an alternative explanation to that, those arguments uh, went by the wayside. And the bottom line then is the current uh, resurrection of those arguments are intrinsically wedded to a rejection of Darwinian explanations of mm -hmm. design. So the intelligent design movement in front of us is uh, wedded to anti-evolutionism unlike uh, the legacy of other design arguments. So if I understand you correctly then, uh, there once was a time prior to, say, Charles Darwin's book of 1859 on the origin of species when a scientist could go about his, or in some cases her, uh, activities and it was a way to praise God by doing that and to, to, in, to see the evidence of the creator uh, he, she, or it, whatever it was, in the objects of your study. And then after Darwin, so the story goes, that this uh, idea of a perfectly adapted organism living in a perfect place or of there being a designer then goes by the wayside. And so the current intelligent design controversy, uh, and many people will forward Philip Johnson, who was mentioned before by Professor Murphy, or Michael Behe's work, on that is a result then of this reaction to these events that started out perhaps with uh, Alfred Russell Wallace and, and Charles Darwin in 1859. Good point, Mike, although I would want to say that um, you're, you're so right, there was once a time when a science, scientist doing his or her work could find in that work a praise of God, but I don't think Darwin changed that. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's still I perfectly okay. possible to view the world as uh, the glorious manifestation of, of a, a wise and, and loving and aesthetically rich creator uh, and that it's possible to do that through looking at the evolutionary process. So I, I wouldn't want to pit uh, evolution versus uh, the ability to see the hand of God and the creator. And in fact, there's a rich tradition of natural theology that has grown out of evolutionary theory, emphasizing right. the process itself rather than the uh, miraculous nature of each product. I think that helps us to think beyond the uh, conflict model that, that Professor Murphy sketched out that's often seen between mm -hmm. science on the one hand and religion on the other. Uh, let me, uh, I want to, you're free to talk about intelligent design if, if you would like, Professor Murphy, but the next question is for you. And I, I um, I'd like to maybe expand on it a little bit and ask you, how, how do you account for the persistence of, say, issues of science and religion in the public sphere? Um, because I, I know that, you know, I think as a historian, uh, uh, if we'll stick with 
evolution for a moment, that in 1925, we had a trial in Tennessee, the Scopes trial, um, and we have had subsequent trials since, mostly around evolution, about whether um, um, uh, certain variants of evolutionary-like or, or religious-like theories could or could not be taught in, in public schools. But it seems to me that the re issue of where the sciences and religion, if I can singularize that, fit together is much broader than that. It's not just evolution. There are many things here. One of the things that we're doing on this campus now is we have a national center for the study of um, nanotechnology in society. And when you start talking about matter theory, and I know that you have done a lot of research on materialism and what constitutes the basic stuff of the world, that issues of science and religion and religion are never very far away. So too, we have research that will be going on on this campus on embryological stem cell research, which uh, will also, I suspect, elicit again in the public sphere and probably in our own research programs the necessity of, of a sensitivity to um, various perspectives in the, the larger uh, community on these issues. So um, how do you account for the, for the persistence of science and religion issues? Didn't, wasn't this solved at one time, or is it that the people don't listen to each other? Are, we, are there camps that are talking past each other? What's your perspective on that? Well, on the evolution issue, um, unfortunately, I think the uh, perception of conflict is uh, actually based on bad theology rather than bad science. Uh, the Christian tradition has always taught that God works through every natural process. God is imminent in everything that God has created and is in some manner or other working within that process. Okay. And uh, there also have been uh, uh, generally views that God does special divine acts, but those are never as opposed to a natural process. You could always see one of God's special acts from the side of theology, but if you are watching it from simply from the side of science, uh, you'll see natural processes all the way through. It's not that the natural process stops, a divine act is inserted, and then the natural process starts out again. And so what the... Um, objectors to evolution are doing is trying to find holes in the evolutionary account that they, that they will uh, basically put God into the gaps in order to argue that there is a God. That is a strategy that's pretty uh, sure to fail as science progresses and it's, uh, uh, it, it grieves me because it sets the students up to believe that they can't have both their Christianity and the science and as they get better science educations, unfortunately, that leaves them with this uh, belief that they have to give up their religious commitments. And I've heard stories of biologists who teach in universities saying he sees large numbers of students uh, giving up on their Christian commitments. And I think that is just a tragedy because it's so unnecessary. Now, why does this persist? Um, I'm not an expert at all on the sociology of anti-evolutionism, but uh, I understand that it's connected with the fear of uh, loss of morality, particularly traditional family values, which means 1950s family values. Um, uh, so uh, I, I can't really pursue that any further. Okay. 
Um, yes, Professor Schloss. Uh, yeah, that's this is fun conversation. Let me just jump in there. So Nancy, the theologian, sees problems with the theology mm -hmm. that fuels this. Uh, on my end, from the perspective of science, I, I see scientific problems. I, I think there, there are scientific problems with the intelligent design movement, but I think that they are responding to profound scientific problems uh, in the evolutionary community. And by that I don't mean so much... Um, uh, strictly speaking scientific errors but errors of conflating science with ideology mm -hmm. and I, th I, I think um, natural sciences themselves need to do some house cleaning mm -hmm. so for example perhaps the most prominent uh, evolutionary biologist in the world Richard Dawkins who holds an endowed chair for the public understanding of science at Cambridge publishes in science a few years ago the world has precisely those properties we would expect if there is no good no evil no God nothing but uh, pointless indifference. Mm -hmm. Now, those conclusions don't follow from mm -hmm. science, Absolutely. but he is asserting that they do, and, and then it should be no surprise mm -hmm. that, um, that Christians who believe that the world is uh, about something very different are nervous about evolutionary theory. Or the philosopher mm -hmm. James Rachels uh, says that the idea of the dignity of human beings turns out to be, quote-unquote, the moral effluvium of a discredited metaphysics. Uh, in his book, uh, Created from Animals, The Moral Implications of Darwinism. So I don't think people's worries about morality are just worried about uh, 1950s mm. family value. Uh, they're, they're taking seriously uh, the suggestions of evolutionary biologists and evolutionary philosophers who are saying overtly, yeah, there is a challenge here. Of course, evolutionary psychology is one of these disciplines that is very much built on, on finding guides for human action, either in, um, say, ant behavior, as E.O. Wilson posited in 1975 in his book on sociobiology, but also much more now sophisticated arguments on that. Um, there is um, a book that I'll just bring up for the audience uh, and ourselves uh, called The Siren of Evolutionary Ethics by Paul Farber of a few years ago, who basically concludes that uh, there's no guide. <laughs> there is no guide. Nature has no guide for human ethical systems. Would either of you like to address that, or shall we move on to another question? Uh, I, would briefly. Like to, I would like to address okay. that. I do not believe that you can read the character of God off of the character of, of nature, so, design arguments for the existence of God get you a very ambiguous designer. Neither can you read morality off of the character of the natural world. You can find um, uh, predecessors of altruism, uh, and you could say that, yes, the human species ought to develop that. You can also find predecessors of um, all of the most ghastly behaviors uh, among the animals, and you could equally say, okay, it's up to the human species to um, uh, develop these further. So morality has to come from an understanding of the nature of ultimate reality. And so the Dawkinses of the world are saying that what you see in nature is, is what you get, and uh, you're going to have to make up a moral system um, um, out of uh, whole cloth. If you're a theist, you say ultimate reality is God, and uh, you ask what are God's purposes for creation, especially God's purposes for us, and that gives you your morality. 
there was a, a, an attempt in the modern period to sever ethics from the religious traditions. It made sense in those days because the religious traditions were at war with one another. But it has turned out that if you cut off the sphere of the ethical from any uh, metaphysical or the theological conception of ultimate reality, it will go begging for, for support. Well said. I, I think this is a great question. I really mm -hmm. love your response. I would want to make a distinction between the enterprise of evolutionary ethics, okay. which uh, attempts to draw uh, normative moral conclusions from biology, and in some cases actually tries to do meta-ethics uh, from biology to explain why on earth uh, there should be or we should believe there is even such mm -hmm. a thing as right or wrong. I think that is a complete dead end. Uh, on the other hand, you mentioned evolutionary psychology, Mike. I think that their goals are much more modest. Uh, they want to explain the way the human moral sense is in fact embodied, to, to use a Christian term. And uh, I, I think uh, Blaise Pascal says, man is neither angel nor brute. He who would act the angel unfortunately acts the brute. If we want to uh, act with, in accord with transcendent uh, or ultimately real moral principles, we better do it in the context of an understanding of the constraints of our, our biological nature. One of the great concerns that, that I've had and I've uh, mentioned before is this um, idea of a a conflict between science and religion, and uh, I, I mean, in, in the best of all historical methods, because I'm I'm neither a, a philosopher of science nor a scientist, is to be eclectic. So maybe there is is something of a lesson there in, in terms of uh, methodology to be eclectic in our our approaches. Let me um, let us now shift here. I want to talk. Uh, you be free to talk about your own research, but. The research front as regards science and religion uh, issues now, uh, for, let's take about, say, five minutes or so uh, together to discuss that. Where, where do you see the research front now? Because you two are working in very different areas of the science and religion uh, cosmos. So could we begin with uh, Professor Murphy? Where do you see the... the uh, in we've talked about intelligent design, but beyond an evolution, we can come back to that evolution, but where do you see sort of the hot-button issues now, right now, in 2005? Well, neuroscience and human nature, okay. the physicalism issue, but also uh, the problem that's traditionally been called the problem of natural evil. And what this refers to is uh, human suffering at the hands of nature and also animal suffering. Uh, why is the world that way? There was the, the traditional answer coming from Augustine in the 5th century is that uh, when humans fell, and the angels also, it disordered the world. And it was the disordering of the world through human sin that was the cause of women's pain in childbirth, uh, men's struggle with thistles in the fields, and uh, also all of the famines, plagues, floods, earthquakes, etc. That uh, account simply doesn't work anymore. We don't understand uh, human sin as having catastrophic 
uh, effects on the whole constitution of the universe. And there was a great deal of suffering in, in, among the animals before humans even appeared on the scene. So there's a huge gap in Christians' ability to account for, to, an, to answer the question, where is God? Where was God during the tsunami? Where was God during the, the, these recent uh, hurricanes? And when you read what religious writers have to say about it and ask the folks on the street, you get uh, very anthropocentric uh, answers. Well, God is testing my faith by washing my children out to sea. Or God is punishing us for some great uh, sins in our midst, etc. Um, that's not the way to go. Uh, the way to go is to recognize that the universe is um, a, a causal order and there are certain necessary preconditions in the universe that enable it, that it to bear life. One of those preconditions is a planet with an active crust. If the crust is not active, the planet's surface becomes sterile and no higher forms of life could survive on it. So if there are going to be humans on Earth, there has to be plate tecton tectonics. And if you get that, you get uh, earthquakes and tsunamis. Now, I don't know enough meteorology to know wh whether or why we have to have hurricanes, but that's the sort of direction that theologians need to go into in order to answer that question, where was God? God was there um, grieving with those who suffered, God was not there doing it to them, but God, God realized that uh, in order for there to be any us's at all, there has to be a universe almost exactly like the one we're in, which causes these huge amounts of suffering. Thanks. Let's uh, switch over here to Professor Schloss, and in addition then to the problem of natural evil and bad events and naturalistically caused uh, grief of humankind, what would you say would be one of the hot-button research issues currently that uh, uh, in the science and religion yeah, I think there are a, a, a couple very briefly. Uh, first of all, uh, we've talked about the conversation between science and religion, but the elephant in the closet uh, that nobody is talking about is scientific explanations of religion, and that's a field that's just coming into fruition now within the last couple of years. There have been uh, uh, several dozen major monographs. That, that's going to be a hot issue uh, in terms of uh, both neurophysiological, uh, uh, cognitive science, and evolutionary explanations of religion. And some of those are religion-affirming, and some of them are nothing buttery, uh, that try to ex ex not just explain, but explain away religion, and even view it as a, a pathological virus that infects humans. So that's a, that's a huge topic. And then I, I would say the second topic is we've talked about uh, natural theology. What we haven't talked about, uh, except just briefly, is the counterpart movement, what you might call natural atheology. Um, scientific arguments for atheism. Mm -hmm. This is a topic that I know that Nancy has mm -hmm. recently become interested in, but I think it's taking off, and in a sense, that's a form of science and religion, although it's uh, anti-religious mm -hmm. science, and that, that's generating some fascinating conversations, including then responses uh, to those uh, ideas, some by evolutionary biologists that are looking at the directionality uh, of evolution and perhaps... Uh, the, the way in which uh, evolution isn't completely chaotic and random but may reflect uh, in inputs uh, of information that is consonant with belief in a creator. Excellent. 
In, in the few moments that we have left, I'd now like you to cut loose and prognosticate. Let's imagine that we're doing this interview again in 10 years, and we're sitting in this room, and I'm asking you about the hot-button issues. Or let, let's, let's not say that. Let's say what is happening in science and religion um, at the moment, issues, and what questions have been solved what questions have, uh, say, been dropped, and what new ones would you see? We've talked now uh, about three questions here in the last few moments that are the hot uh, uh, issues. And we'll start here with Professor uh, Murphy. Are we going to have anything solved in 10 years? <laughs> I, I think that pro progress is made in this field. Uh, uh, there's been progress in understanding how you can reconcile uh, natural uh, explanations of events with a view that God is active in those events. Okay. That's been a long-standing uh, discussion, and I think a great deal of progress has been made on that, uh, and probably not a whole lot more uh, will be done, needs to be done. Um, the human uh, nature issue uh, is going to be done, uh, unless there turns out to be a grassroots opposition movement that will end up like the uh, anti-evolution movement in the United States. The places that we're going to be going in the future have to do primarily with uh, scientific cosmology and astronomy. Uh, what happens if we find out that there is other life in the universe? What happens if um, the theories about the multiverses turn out to be true? That is, what if, what if our universe, everything that we think of as the universe, is just one tiny bubble in a much larger foam of other universes. What does that say about God? What does that say about the um, uh, place of human beings in God's plan? What does that say about the notion for Christians that Jesus Christ is somehow uh, a final uh, revelation of God, uh, but coming in human form only to this universe? So I think those are going to be the um, questions of the future. I can see your training in theology and in philosophy of science coming through in that. Uh, Professor Schloss, would you like to come in on that? Yeah, of course, we're, we're speculating wildly well, what, here. It's but free. I, I actually think that there are some issues which we probably okay. will come to closure on, not just because of what's happening in the science-religion community, but mm -hmm. what's happening in philosophy of science mm -hmm. and science itself. Uh, if I were to bet, I would bet that the issue of reductionism mm. uh, in the next decade or two will be essentially settled. Uh, it will have run its course, and we will see that at, at a number of levels, the reductionistic project has been extremely fruitful, but is not sufficient to explain everything from uh, human personhood to even developmental biology. So that's one issue I would expect to see uh, closed happily uh, and moved on to a more fruitful um, in addition to Nancy's, now what would still remain to, to, to wrestle with? Um, in addition to cosmological issues, I think uh, an issue within biology that is being revisited is the notion of teleology, the notion of um, what are organisms for? And this turns out to be philosophically and biologically a, a really difficult question. In fact, biologists are probably the only natural scientists who study something that they can't give an operational definition to. So uh, we can't define life. And it, therefore, it becomes very difficult to discuss such issues as broken life or sick life or patho pathological life. Now, there are profound 
philosophical and even um, theological uh, presuppositions right. that go into those. That's a conversation that we haven't had. We need to start having. The uh, theologian John Hott says that he thinks that the next topic for the next decade is what is life? Uh, and how, we, we need to answer that question before we make decisions about stem cells or end-of-life issues. Oh. I'd like to thank uh, both uh, Professor Jeffrey Schloss of Westmont College and uh, Professor Nancy Murphy of Fuller Theological Seminary for an enlivening conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Mike.